Hey, Leading Learning listener, if you represent a membership organization looking for ways to expand your online course catalog rapidly with high quality content, we have good news. At leadinglearning.com AMA, you can find out how to make online training from the American Management Association available to your learners. Through a partnership between AMA and Tagoras, the parent company of Leading Learning, you can give your learners access to more than 70 e-learning modules covering essential business topics ranging from leading and innovating, to managing projects effectively, to working in hybrid teams. For details on how to grow your catalog with courses from a true global leader in management training, visit leadinglearning.com AMA. The way motivation was defined was do people start, persist, and put in mental effort? And it's important to highlight the word like does not appear in that set of things, right? Often people think motivating somebody is about getting them to like what they're doing. In fact, no, that's actually not connected to learning. I'm Salisa Steele. I'm Jeff Cobb, and this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Welcome to episode 343, which features a conversation with Dr. Brewer Saxberg. Brewer is passionate about learning engineering and focuses on applying what's known about learning science and learning measurement at scale to the practical business of making effective, efficient, usable, and graceful learning environments that get learners the outcomes they need to be successful. Brewer is richly and wonderfully experienced in the world of learning, having served as the chief learning officer and co-founder of K-12 Inc., the chief learning officer of Kaplan, and the head of learning sciences at the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. Most recently, he's the founder of Learning Forge, a learning engineering consultancy that helps organizations think creatively about applying learning, development, and motivation science to their products, services, and strategies. Brewer and Salisa talk about learning engineering, the components of expertise, cognitive task analysis, a model of motivation, evidence-centered design, and more. They spoke in November 2022. Reading up a little bit about your background, I was struck by the fact that you're a doctor doctor. Is that right? (laughs) Yes. Well, this is because I began life as a researcher, a pure researcher. I'm an MD, PhD. I used to do human and machine vision research at MIT's Artificial Intelligence Laboratory back in the 1980s, uh, before fire, before the iPhone, as my daughter likes to say. She's never sure which came first, but it was a long time ago, let's put it that way. And I am an engineer. And so over time, I just got really interested in that question of, well, okay, how do you use what we know about human minds, human learning, to do something real at scale. And that's really then been, you know, what I've been about ever since then. The fact that I'm an MD, it's interesting. Medicine, if you like, is an engineering branch of human biological sciences, right? So it's amazing how much we've learned about human disease, human biology and all that. But medicine is the effort to use that in ways that create practical solutions at scale. And so There are decades-long series of research articles in journals like the Journal of the American Medical Association or the New England Journal of Medicine, which are basically bedside research. They're like, it's not 
laboratory petri dish research. It's actually work at the bedside to see, does this insight from the sciences lead to something valuable at the bedside? And in fact, we don't have that much of that going on in learning where there are journals and professionals who are literally looking at evidence gathering and checking closely what works for whom when, when we're applying an education intervention, whether it's a technology-based intervention or whether it's just simply a change in practice to try to help teach kids how to add fractions of unlike denominators or how to become kids who are excited by mathematics or for, for adults, as many of your listeners are thinking about, you know, how do you help adults begin to recognize that they can become something different? They should have those aspirations. And how do you give them the right sets of skills and attitudes to become top performers in the fields they want to enter, not just simply average performers? Well, and that might be a good place to then talk about expertise, because I know that's an area that you've given some focus in your work, and you really point to that importance of understanding expertise and then feeding that understanding into how we design and develop learning environments and learning experiences. So would you just share a little bit about the components of expertise and how we can go about defining expertise? Yeah, happy to. It's one of the more remarkable results of a lot of cognitive science research over the last, honestly, 50 years now, maybe more, is how expert minds seem to be organized. And it's not the way most of us think. And it's a real problem, actually, for learners, but also for developers. The way this came about was in the 1960s, people were starting to create expert systems. And there were some being created in the world of medicine, things like, hey, let's create an expert system that can diagnose infectious diseases. How hard can this be, right? We get some infectious disease experts, we sit them down, they describe how they do their work, we code that up, and look at that, we've altered human health for the rest of history. Woohoo! our work will be done, we can go for lunch. Well, what they discovered as they had these experts, you know, supposedly unspool how their expertise works is experts didn't actually have a very good verbal understanding of how they made decisions. Now, at first blush, it's like, wait, these people don't know what they're doing, what's going on? But in fact, that's not the case, that their minds as a bag of neurons, having become expert, have a huge amount of patterns and processes and signal detection things that are hardwired into long-term memory, but have basically disappeared from verbal awareness. So their brains nudge them and show them and get them to do the next thing, and they don't necessarily know that that's what's happening in a verbal way because our verbal capacities tend to be in what's called working memory, which is the part of our minds that does very complex problem solving, uses language, it's quite slow, but it is the most creative part that we need to use for hard problems and such. Long-term memory, which is where expertise gets stashed as you do repeated practice and feedback, is very fast, can do multiple things in parallel compared to working memory, but it's not verbally very accessible at all. So what this means is you have to do real work to unpack how top performers decide and do what they do. And real work does not mean just give them a pen or a keyboard and ask them to start typing lessons. Now, you know, I have to say an awful lot of teaching and training materials and training environments are basically created by trusting that all we need are experts and then they will figure it out. 
and we don't do the next step. And that's where the cognitive scientists from the 60s forward figured out they had to do some really careful interviewing work and watching experts actually make decisions and think aloud as they did them to unpack a lot more of what a top performing mind does. There's a collection of, of approaches to this called cognitive task analysis that people like Richard Clark have spent decades perfecting and using in many circumstances that helps you get sort of 70 to 80% of what a top performer's mind is doing compared to less than 30% that just letting a top performer talk or teach actually you know, uncovers. So you can make actually dramatic performance improvements that way. And there have been empirical studies of this showing really major changes in the outcomes of training for that. So, so what does this mean for you know, you know, folks who are interested in trying to help learners switch careers or get better at their own careers and so forth? It means you have to actually be a bit humble about how you're coming up with the outcomes you're after. And you have to have a bit of a wide lens for this. You, if you're trying to do your best work, meaning help your learners accelerate the most in their careers after your training program, you should not restrict yourself to textbooks or to standardized curriculum and just digitizing those things because those were not built by deeply understanding what top performers decided and do. And that's both within the domain, but also top performers often have a range of time management and communication skills that are not well articulated within the domain-centric training manuals and training books that have already been created. And yet, that ability to manage time, to communicate with a wide array of different professionals in the workforce, that can be just as important to a professional success as anything that they have in long-term memory about, about their domain expertise. So it really means one way or the other, either going all the way to doing cognitive task analyses, which are pretty intense and you know take a lot of effort on top performers parts and so forth. But again, I'm an engineer, right? So if you can't do that, can you back off and at least you know, engage well-trained instructional designers in talking with top performers to kind of understand, well, why did you do this and why that, as opposed to just assuming that they've already described everything there is to know about it. So that's kind of how you think about expertise. And it, it is the starting point. If you don't have the outcomes you want laid out, what do you want learners to decide and do at the end of this that will lead them forward to the goals they aspire to, well, then all the rest of it, the evidence gathering, the practice and feedback, the worked examples, the rest of it, you're going to miss your target, even if you do good design for the rest of it. So outcomes are really important. And I don't think we spend enough time on doing that. And the last piece on this is expertise is changing faster and faster. I mean, in the Middle Ages, you know, if you were lucky enough to become a grandparent and you handed your stonemasonry tools off to your grandkids, they were grateful because they were the same tools that you used, they're the same tools they're using, and they could use that to continue building the same cathedral you've been working on for 100 years. Well, these days, you go a couple of years and there are new tools. There's new technologies, you know, new pieces of software that top performers actually need and are using to do even better work, which means you can't just train in your 20s to be good at something and then rely on that for 40 years and retire. You've got to be in a kind of a continuous improvement model. Well, so how are we providing the right continuous improvement? 
Well, we've got to figure out, well, what is the latest work that's that top performers are doing and then build that into our continuous training environments. Well, I really appreciate those last couple of points, one around how expertise is evolving more than ever. And also the point around that cognitive task analysis, which is so expensive in terms of time and money and just the effort involved. And so I think you began to get at it a little bit, but you know, maybe just talk for a minute about when does it make sense to do cognitive task analysis versus when would you maybe potentially try to take a lighter and perhaps more agile approach to understanding expertise in a particular domain? Yep. Yeah. Well, this is where learning engineering is a design exercise, right? There, there is a certain amount of art and, uh, you know, intuition that you have to bring to bear to trying to solve real world problems and decide which are the right techniques and how many resources to apply to different things. I mean, to me, at one level, it's not that hard. It's, you know, well, what's not going well? You know, talk to employers, talk to employees who've now just left your, if you have existing training programs or any existing training programs, and ask them, what was the hardest thing in your first year on the job? And it's a way of unpacking, even at top level, what there is. And when I was at Kaplan, we did a cognitive task analysis of paralegals. We didn't go all the way to the detailed part of it, but we did enough to see that something like half of the things that top performing paralegals did in their jobs was not at all trained on in standard textbook materials that were used in the paralegal training community. And so this is true in all kinds of professions and explains why nurses and lawyers and paralegals and all kinds of people, when they move from their training program into a job, it's often a very bumpy first year. And the reason is because they weren't actually trained to do the current job. I mean, some healthcare environments find themselves spending an enormous amount of resources retraining healthcare workers who are trained on ways to do healthcare that are 10 years old. And so when they come in, they're not clueless, but helpless in the sense of, wait, what's all this? And so now it's the companies that have to engage in major retraining of these folks. So that's what I would do is I would look to see what are the hardest, most important things that seem to be missing. And then those are the ones that you would go deeper on in terms of, okay, now wait a minute, how do top performers handle this piece, this outcome, this kind of decision? And I would actually use that same kind of reasoning all the way through a learning engineering process where you're trying to think through, okay, how much effort do I put into designing practice and feedback? Do I actually go all the way to making a simulation for this thing? Or can I get away with a bit of a lecture, a couple of quiz questions and move on? And it's the same kind of thinking, which is, well, wait, what are the hardest, most important things? And for that, call it 10%, I mean, 20%, whatever number you wish for that 10% of those outcomes, then go deep on really using learning science and the best methods you can come up with to do the kind of practice and feedback and worked examples and all the rest. And then other parts that are easier to learn it's okay, it's a trade-off. And so then you can use lighter weight approaches to those. And then the last thing about this is then you wanna iterate. So I, we used to say this uh, at, at Kaplan, you know, we wanna celebrate success, but we're gonna instrument for failure. So you wanna instrument your learning environment so that you can find out where is it not going well and why, what part of the learning process did not go as intended 
Because if there was something about the software tools broke, that's very different than that the method wasn't a good method. And so you want information about what was the learner experience like in those places that didn't go well. And again, that's where you then bring in more of the learning science, more of the investment in doing this as well as you possibly can once you discover you know, what's actually broken. We're grateful to WBT Systems for sponsoring the Leading Learning Podcast. Top Class LMS provides the tools for you to become the preferred provider in your market, delivering value to learners at every stage of their working life. WBT Systems' award-winning learning system enables delivery of impactful continuing education, professional development, and certification programs. The Top Class LMS team supports learning businesses in using integrated learning technology to gain greater understanding of learners' needs and behaviors, to enhance engagement, to aid recruitment and retention, and to create and grow non-dues revenue streams. WBT Systems will work with you to truly understand your preferences, needs, and challenges to ensure that your experience with Top Class LMS is as easy and problem-free as possible. Visit leadinglearning.com slash top class to learn how to generate value and growth for your learning business and to request a demo. I know motivation is another area where you've focused some effort. And so would you share what is it that we know at this point about how motivation impacts learning? Yes. So Richard Clark did, who's a very good cognitive scientist, as I mentioned before, he did a survey of a wide range of research literatures to try to uncover what is it that causes people to not be motivated. And in this search, the way motivation was defined was, do people start, persist, and put in mental effort? And it's important to highlight the word like does not appear in that set of things, right? Often people think motivating somebody is about getting them to like what they're doing. In fact, no, that's actually not connected to learning. I mean, in a way, the analogy is to like, you know, working out on the weights or something or doing scales or working at the bar as a dancer, right? That, you know, you gain benefits whether you like doing that or not. The point is, are you starting, persisting and putting in effort into a well-designed program and you can hate the weights all you want, but by doing that, you are changing your muscles in that case. Well, it turns out learning is a bit the same way, which is if you have a well-designed program, if you start, persist, and put in mental effort, you don't have to like every single part of it. Liking is one of the reasons to do it, but it's not the only reason. So that's what he then did was to you know, have a good long look at you know, behavioral psychology, motivational psychology, cognitive psychology, behavioral economics, some other areas. And your listeners can find this article by looking up Clark and Saxburg and motivation. And he ended up with a really nice four-part model of what makes a difference to people's willingness to start, persist, and put in mental effort. So the first one is, do you value what you're doing and how you're doing it? You know, if you're, a, if you're a dancer in an algebra class, you're thinking about Swan Lake. I mean, you're re it's really tough to get your head around the algebra stuff. So what do you do in that case, if that's the problem? Well, there you wanna connect something that's exciting to you as a dancer with algebra, with what you're trying to learn. So is it a, a foundation, a dance foundation? How much money does it need? Modeling over time, all that. So now you're doing algebra and now you see the point. It really makes a difference. The second thing that goes wrong 
is you just think you can't do it, you know? And so now I'm another dancer in the same algebra class, but I'm no good at math. That's it. So if the math teacher comes, professor comes bustling up to me with, you know, dance foundations and all this, you're just making me miserable. I know how important it is, but I can't do it. So there you need a different solution. You need to do things like show how you've already learned things that are not that different from this kind of math. Um, uh, hear stories from others who just like you thought they couldn't do it, had your same background, and they did it. And how did they do it? That kind of thing. And then make a plan. I mean, there may well be cognitive things that are missing that you need to get back to to master in order to make progress. Make a plan and you know keep going from there. So that's the second thing that goes wrong. The third thing that goes wrong is you blame something in your environment. My teacher hates me. I can't understand this textbook. Have you looked at this? Uh, you know, I don't have any space to work. And the one that professionals love the most is I don't have time. Oh, oh, it's valuable. Oh, oh, I could do it, but I just don't have time. So I don't start, I don't persist, I don't put in mental effort. Totally different again from the first two. And again, it's about helping to problem solve around that to say, let's look at your schedule in the case of a time thing, or let's look at what other spaces we might be able to find for you in a library or you know, at home or somewhere else. And let's find other resources if the teacher is not a good one or the text is not a good one, right? So it's about showing there is a solution to this. The fourth category that he came up with out of this literature review, different completely than these other three, is probably the hardest to resolve. But it's really important, especially in these post-pandemic, well, I say post, in these pandemic times, we're not post, are we? Which is negative emotional states. If you're angry or scared or grieving, it's really hard to start, persist, and put in mental effort into something that's challenging. Even if it's incredibly well-designed, it's still hard to do. So you gotta kind of diagnose those four different things and then figure out how can you help your learning environment, including teachers, trainers, software, whatever, help them diagnose and potentially intervene. So one of the ways, if you back all the way back up again, what we really need to be doing is two kinds of design simultaneously for learning environments. One is cognitive design. And that's where you wanna use learning sciences and understand what is the research we have about specific outcomes or kinds of outcomes, the use of multimedia. There's some great syntheses in places like Clark and Mayer's uh, e-learning and the science of instruction that show you know, what are different research pieces that can guide you as an instructional design to get the best cognitive design for learning. So yes, you wanna do that and the outcomes design we talked about. But the other side is motivation design. And that involves how, you know, how do you detect that someone's having trouble, not because of a cognitive issue, but maybe also because of a motivation issue? They just don't see the point, or they think they can't do it, or they think something's in their way, or they're just really bummed out for some reason, right? And so the motivation design is just as important, actually, as cognitive design, in fact. Um, but so that's why I think about motivation. And because it's the fuel for learning, you know, starting, persisting, and putting in mental effort is key. It's a really important part of design that is usually underappreciated by designers, by professionals, and so forth. And one of the things that I find so encouraging out of the learning sciences as a whole is how optimistic it is. I mean, the evidence shows that brains change all through life and can be made to change dramatically. 
And so we have this myth of talent where we think, oh, you know, I wish I were a good writer. You know, that wouldn't, oh, I wish I were good at math. It would make such a difference. But aside from a, a few kind of neurological issues around dyslexia or, you know, dyscalculia, there's some organic things, right? For the most part, if you can start, persist, and put in mental effort into a well-designed learning program that starts from where you are and heads to important outcomes, you can get there. Now, some folks may take a lot of repetitions to get there, and some folks may take fewer repetitions to get there, but you can actually get there. So the real question, I mean, this is one of the funny things about thinking about this as an adult is, you know, the evidence says, instead of saying, oh, I wish I were a good ex, whether that is a writer or a singer or whatever it is, you gotta look yourself in the mirror in the morning and ask the question, how come I don't care enough to become a good ex, whatever that ex is? Because you've got the machinery. If you will start, persist, put in the mental effort and find a good learning environment that actually matches where you are and what, you know, what you're trying to get to. Well, I think that's fascinating. And as you said yourself, it does seem like the motivation side really does tend to be neglected. And yet it's incredibly powerful because, as you're saying, you can have this well-designed learning environment, learning experience. But if the learner doesn't have the motivation, they're not going to start or they're not going to persist or they're not going to put in the mental effort. And then it's sort of all for naught. So really beginning to think about what you as a learning business can do to support the motivation for learners it seems incredibly valuable, incredibly important. So I'm glad you and unpacked that for us. I'd also say there's another piece of this where cognition and motivation do intersect, definitely. And one of the areas is if you're getting a learner to start something that's new and complicated, that, that is really new to them, like you know, learning to write persuasively, let's say, and they've never mastered that, right? It's very important both for motivation reasons as well as cognitive reasons to try to draw on contexts that are highly familiar and highly valued by them. And the, you know, from a motivation standpoint, I know I need to write persuasively about this thing because I care a lot about it and I see the problem, so that's the motivation side. But it's also a cognition side. In other words, if it's an area I care a lot about and I know a lot about, then a lot of the information about the situation is already in long-term memory which means, and this is one of these cognitive science things that's surprising, it's essentially free. That is, things that are in long-term memory do not feel like effort at all to use. What's effortful is working memories, trying to create or learn something new or wrap its little narrow mind around, you know, how do I write persuasively about th this thing that I know a lot about? And what I think we often miss when we're designing learning environments, especially when we're trying to get people to switch careers and, and you know change gears and so forth, is if you can give them context to get started with that are highly familiar, then they only have one thing they're trying to do, which is I gotta learn to write persuasively and that's really hard and I need a lot of practice and feedback. If you give this that same context to somebody who knows nothing about the context, you've given them two hard problems to solve in one narrow working memory. And so you want to try to get the context to match the learners more. And this to me is part of where technology may have a nice role is to understand different learners' context, their interests, 
use those as the starting points, the springboards for mastering complex cognitive skills. And once you start to master those complex cognitive skills, now you can use those to probe new contexts. So you kind of go back and forth between these two different sides, familiar contexts, unfamiliar skills, and then use the familiar skills to explore unfamiliar contexts and off you go. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point because as you're saying, if you can just focus on one new task, then you're limiting that extraneous cognitive load, which is, you know, helping on one side. And then you're also tapping into the motivation piece, right? Because you're tapping into something they already know and care about. So that makes a lot of sense. I know that you wrote the preface for the learning engineering toolkit. And so in that preface that you wrote, and I had the good fortune of getting to talk with Jim Goodell for the podcast earlier, but I know that you assert that learning engineering should be guided, but not limited to research and practice. So I was just hoping to get you to talk a little bit about what beyond research and practice should be guiding our use of learning engineering and how we're designing experiences. Yeah, a couple of things. I mean, in a sense, the best engineering is always standing on the shoulders of prior practice and prior research. But you have to look at the exact context you're in and what's going on now in this environment to get the best kind of solution. And sometimes you're just going to have to make a bit of a leap. And it has more to do with kind of design and creation consistent with prior practice and prior research but maybe not ever done like that before. It also, in my mind, includes a real, if you, again, this is true in all kinds of design and engineering work, you, you really need to design inclusively. In other words, work with the folks who are going to be the most affected by what you're putting together. Don't sit in your conference room and imagine what it's like to be a learner who's working full-time and has a family and is now trying to change jobs. It's like, let's get some of those in the room before we even start and begin to understand, okay, what, what is their context? What are they most worried about as you begin the design process? And it is amazing how much you learn from that. Same thing with teachers, trainers, professionals. If, you're, if you've got humans in the loop as well, you want them in that same room really early on listening to learners because often teachers, professors, trainers, they just do that. They may not have listened deeply to their learners maybe ever. And in some of the inclusive design processes I've been involved in, it is a surprise to all the professionals in the room, whether they're instructional designers or teachers, what they hear from the actual learners about what works and doesn't work, what excites them and what they hate about learning experiences. And that productive conversation where you then share also the learning sciences, motivation sciences, you share it with everyone so that everyone begins to have all the pieces on the table. And then you begin to say, now, what then could be practical solutions that you all really feel like you could actually dig into, you could implement in your world, you'd enjoy all that. And then you begin to pilot, right? You begin to rapidly pilot and iterate in these kind of agile ways that you do things. Well, so that, you know, you're not copying and pasting from, you know, a previous exercise. In fact, I think about learning engineering, you know, a lot of learning work, I think too much has drawn on a kind of software engineering model where the goal is to make a great training program or a great textbook, right, or a great media experience and then copy the heck out of it and get everyone to use it, right? And I, 
that works for Excel, it works for Facebook, it works for you know Google, it works for all kinds of software tools. But there's another engineering tradition that's really different. It's the civil engineering tradition. If I'm gonna build a bridge across the Potomac River, I do not copy and paste a bridge across the Thames. That doesn't make any sense. That's total malpractice. What do you do as a civil engineer? Well, you go to the Potomac River and you bring with you a toolkit of context variables that you're after, the soil structure, the water levels, and of course the usage, who's gonna be on this bridge and what times of day and all that. And it's not just on the day you visit, it's for the next 20 years. How does it vary? You know, 30 years, how does it vary and all that. Once you have all that context, you can now begin to design the bridge. But one interesting thing about this is you don't have to put a steel forge onto the bank of the Potomac and start producing new steel. You don't have to do that. What you know how to do is create specifications of the steel you need, the shapes you need, and you can then start to assemble your design and make your design and assemble your design mostly from parts that exist and that you can then pull in. Now you still have to do some custom stuff. You always have to you know, pour your own footings for the bridge, that's its custom work. But a lot of the rest of it is putting together pieces that you understand how they fit into this context. And so to me, that's part of what we need to be doing is thinking about the context in which learners work and then start to assemble parts of solutions based on where have they worked before. So all of this ends up being more than just copying and pasting a single solution from one place to another. It is about being informed by what's happened before, including the parts and pieces, but then you have to do your own work in that context. And you've mentioned it a couple of times, this, the importance of iteration in the learning engineering process. And so what do you see as being the effective parts of iterating well? Well, a couple of things. One is just where we started from, which is, have you even clearly defined the outcomes you're after? I mean, do you actually properly have a clue of whether or not you're going to achieve what you're after? And it is surprising how often outcomes are either backwards mapped to a textbook or something else, or they are poorly framed in the sense it's, you know, a student should know X, Y, or Z. Well, that's not objective. You can't tell what that means. And so the first step is, do you have your outcomes laid out in a way that is about what students can decide and do? That then naturally leads you to evidence gathering where you can then look to see, well, can they decide and do these things? And like I said before, you really want an instrument for failure, meaning not just, nope, they can't do algebra. Nope. It's like, wait, 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 wait. That's not helpful. I can't iterate based on that, even though that's what a lot of you know test scores will do. I need to know, well, which parts of this and where are there failures that are happening along the way? Is it failures of reasoning? Is it failures of calculation or computation? Is it time issues? Is it something completely outside the academic piece where they're just totally distracted or depressed, as we talked about earlier, and so they can't get their work done, right? And so you need multiple sources of evidence connected to your outcomes, connected to motivation, to then be able to look to see for whom is this going well. And I say that because often in the learning world, we tend to kind of group everyone together and ask, did it work? And it's like, no, who did it work for and when is a much better context-framed kind of question. Because sometimes you don't want to lose the fact that it did work for a subset of users. Because then it's like, wait, 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 don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Keep that. 
Then you want to look at the ones who did not succeed and try to figure out, okay, what's up with that? What is it about them and their experience or even their background or their motivation? And that's where you then start to do interventions. And now you are measuring and iterating on a subset because you've already found folks who are actually doing fine and you don't need to mess with that success. So that notion of taking apart the context in which learning is happening, having good enough evidence, and then being willing to you know, make evidence-based changes and then see if that's actually helping, both on a cognitive side and a motivation side. It just reminded me of the success case method, and we were lucky to have Rob Brinkerhoff on the podcast earlier as well, but that idea of, right, looking at who is it working for and then what does that tell you, and then also looking at you know who is it not working for, but rather than having this monolithic sort of approach to, to, to outcomes and how it's working or not. I have one more thing to that, just... It's too easy, I think, also to focus on the learner as Mm -hmm. if the learner is the only important thing in this whole situation. So what's wrong with the learner? What's happening with the learner? In fact, context can be way more than the learner, right? It's like, where is this learner learning? Who else is there? What are the trainers like? What are their peers like? What are those interactions like? There could be things that are outside the learner that are just as powerful to help the learner if you make changes to them as things that are somehow targeting directly to the learner. So you actually want to think about this context as more than just variables from the learner. It's also, well, what's around that learner? What's the whole learning environment that the learner is experiencing? Big picture, when you think about the current state of learning ecosystems, how would you describe the current state? You know, kind of what's working well, what isn't working well, or is maybe still poorly understood or misunderstood at this point? I'll offer a couple of, of thoughts here, and I'll start that all these learning and training ecosystems worldwide, really, honestly, from pre-K all the way up, Maybe post-mortem training is working okay, you know? But, uh, you know, basically all of it is has the same problem, which is it's not evidence-grounded. And, you know, whether you're an investor, a teacher, a parent, a learner, him or herself, you know, an administrator, a trainer, people just don't have evidence-based groundings on how learning and motivation work. So, you know, I'm, as I mentioned, I'm an MD-PhD, so... Let's compare and contrast with the situation in medicine. So, and the pandemic is a really nice forcing function. I use the term force advisedly. Everyone got kicked off the cliff on multiple directions, right? Well, what's interesting is on the healthcare side, you know, total disaster in many ways, but all the solution making and efforts forward, almost all of them were inside the guardrails of evidence-based practice. I mean, I don't know about you or your listeners, I heard nobody demanding a return to animal sacrifices. I mean, those were the good old days. Can we start doing randomized controlled trials on randomized, you know, on animal sacrifices? Because that's how we used to do all these things, right? Nobody was, no, that's ridiculous. Even vaccine deniers were typically working on the same mythology. And, you know, the the story of, of the immune system is, hey, I got invisible attackers, I've got invisible defenders in my body, but they're not able to do it all their all their own. I've got to inject some invisible help to help those invisible defenders against the invisible attackers. Will Will you, Salisa, give me $4 billion for a story like that? I mean, it just sounds dumb when you put it that way, right? 
it actually does echo the evidence of how this all works, right? And so even vaccine deniers, for the most part, would be saying things like, I don't think this has been tested long enough, or I want to inject other invisible things, right? But they stayed inside these guardrails of a story, you could call it a mythology, but call it a story of healthcare that's grounded in evidence, okay? Now look at the education pandemic, education and training pandemic, right? Everyone gets kicked off the cliff into virtual learning, but there were no evidence-based guardrails. So people just did all kinds of things in lots of videos, or maybe it's just talk rooms and we talk to each other, or maybe I can just duplicate my lectures online. Or, and none of it was grounded in evidence, even what we've been talking about on this podcast about how learning works, you know, working memory and long-term memory and the practice and feedback needed to move things into long-term memory or motivation, you know, how do we, and motivation was a huge failure point for all of this education pandemic. So, so to me, that's one of the biggest issues with our ecosystem right now, which is we don't have a shared story of learning that is optimistic and positive, like I talked about earlier, that suggests, whoa, if you want to get there, you probably can. You just need to sweat like crazy and you need to find the learning environments that will get you there, but you can get there, right? And then what is a good learning environment for you? Well, okay, we have none of those stories. And the same thing, investors, publishers, all these other folks, they don't start from learning engineering. They don't start from a deep understanding of how learning works. I mean, imagine if our entire healthcare apparatus was still built on you know, the four humors, right? And we had all this research sitting everywhere about bugs and you know, viruses and you know, de degenerate diseases and molecular biology, but no, medical schools, no, we do the four humors. That's what we do. Can you imagine what kind of decision-making there would be? Because those are the people who go out and make decisions. The researchers are off in their labs doing stuff, but you need an engineering wing that is grounded on the research in some ways, and that can also then help teach venture capitalists, teach managers, teach teachers this common grounding. I mean, even a neurosurgeon, this is like a joke, a neurosurgeon and a psychiatrist walk into a bar, okay? I'm not gonna complete the joke, but the point is, they actually can talk about medicine because they actually have a shared story of how human bodies function and molecular biology and you know, disease and cancer, all kinds of things. Now, each of them has deep specialties that the other one isn't gonna understand, but boy, there's a really rich common layer that they can use to learn about each other's work or to talk about a different health issue that's going on. We do not have that kind of an evidence-grounded layer for the whole ecosystem. I think another thing that is missing in ecosystems as a whole is not doing what I said earlier, which is really deeply instrumenting and iterating, You know, being very careful about multiple lines of evidence. I think there's been, over time, I think people are beginning to understand this, but over time, there was too much emphasis on trying to build the one perfect assessment, you know, the one perfect way to tell if somebody's good at this thing. And in fact, that's not how this can work at all. Bob Mislevy from ETS and some colleagues created a whole way of thinking about measuring learning that's called evidence-centered design. And what they point out is if you have an invisible complex cognitive structure that you're trying to probe, 
you need to use multiple lines of evidence in order to see, is this brain actually different in the way we hoped it would be? That a single line of evidence is very likely to lead you astray because then people will just manipulate that one line of evidence. But if you look at near-term outcomes, but also longer-term outcomes and multiple kinds, you know, if this brain were good at this thing, what should be happening in the workplace? What tasks should be different? And how would we know? And how would other colleagues react to them? When you put together multiple lines of evidence, now you can begin to get information relevant to that construct, and you're less likely to make the mistake of pushing on just one line of evidence and not realizing, whoop, we missed actually some of the most important things. And so I think people are not thinking holistically enough about the evidence that they should be gathering. The third thing relates to what we talked about before is I think we have underinvested in understanding motivation. And to me, that ties into issues of identity, issues of long-term memory and context and all kinds of things that, that connect up to cognition. But just also that notion, we need to get all our citizens around the globe at all ages to get excited about starting, persisting, and putting in mental effort into new things that they want to do, that they want to do, as opposed to feeling like, I can't do that. I'm too old, I'm not smart enough, or you know, I wish I could, but I can't. We need that fuel, as well as better learning environments, to actually power us forward as humanity, especially as things like artificial intelligence and various technologies begin to snap up what used to be simple, still complex, but relatively simple cognitive tasks, which we should no longer have people be doing. So we've got to get people more things that they need to do. The research suggests it takes about 10 years of really intense, deliberate practice. You've probably heard about this, the 10-year rule, in order to become kind of world-class. And there's many examples of that in many different careers. So that's cool. Now, we're all going to live to be 80, 90, 100 years old, right? So if we start, let's say at 20, don't even start at 10, start at 20, okay? That means we could build, each person could build six or seven world-class competencies. Now, you could spend it all on one, but what's interesting to me is the combination. So here we go. You start and you're a gardener, okay? And so you build competence as a gardener, okay? At the same time, you're taking classes in robotics, okay? So now you start to build a robotics expertise. Well, now you can start doing robotic gardening, right? So now at the same time, you start to build business expertise. And now you can put together one of the world's best robotic gardening businesses, right? Lower variable costs and all that. And finally, because, you know, somebody, some robot's going to use shears to hurt somebody, you're going to need some real expertise in law. So you build the legal expertise to create the defense that you need and so forth, right? Four expertises take you 40 years. But think about it. You're unique. You are not replaceable by an AI. And do the combinatorics. There's hundreds of expertise. Just multiply hundreds times hundreds. You've got a unique fingerprint of expertise for each human being on the planet. Now, that's only a thought experiment, but it's a way forward to explain why we need to get better at being able to change our competences. We need to have the motivation to do that throughout life. And then we can start to create really interesting career paths and progressions for each of us over the long term.
Well, that is fascinating. And I do love that idea of the different combinations, the potential to develop expertise in these multiple areas, develop this unique fingerprint of expertise. And that when you pair that or, or perhaps put it up against AI, you know, it, it gives a compelling reason for, you know, why humans can continue to do certain things. Well, and I think your word pairing is exactly right. Because that's how this technology always is going to work, is it's going to be, you know, people using technology for what it's really good at, but then doing something new with that. And that's where these multiple expertises crashing together inside a single human brain can begin to create, you know, new opportunities and new ways of making use of the technologies as they continue to expand. Roar Saxberg is the founder of Learning Forge, a learning engineering consultancy. You'll find a link to the Learning Forge website in the show notes for this episode at leadinglearning.com slash episode 343. If you enjoyed this episode or if you enjoyed the podcast in general, we'd be grateful if you would take a moment to rate the Leading Learning Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Jeff and I would personally appreciate it and reviews and ratings help others find the show. Go to leadinglearning.com slash apple to leave a rating. And please spread the word about leading learning. You can do that in a one-on-one conversation with a colleague or a personal note, or you can do it through social media. In the show notes at leadinglearning.com slash episode 343, you'll find links to connect with us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Thanks for listening and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast. Podcast.